Welcome to episode 65 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, also a family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. And I'm Gary Forenchik. I'm a general internist and professor of medicine at The Michigan State University. Good to have another Spartan here as we Wolverines celebrate our momentous victory over Rutgers. <laughs> big, so big on, congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Gary. So on this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters or poems. If you want all the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem every day, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. You can now get free CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians for listening to this podcast. Just go to iafp.mclms.net to claim it. This week, we're going to discuss gabapentin for chronic pelvic pain, management of acute Achilles tendon rupture, and aspirin for primary prevention. And as you may have heard, uh, John, or I'm sorry, Henry couldn't be with us today, but we have a special guest, Dr. Gary Forenchik from Michigan State University. We've been teaching CME courses to primary care physicians all over the country for the past 20 years with Gary as one of our primary co-conspirators. Gary, thank you for joining us. Always great to get together. Always great. Uh, the listeners didn't know we were bantering a little bit before we went online here, and it's always good to hear you guys. So it's, uh, it's fun to be part of the team, for, at least for one day. Yeah, and if you do well, you know, we might have you back. That, that, you know, oh, I'm I'm, I'm really I'm yeah, really starting to feel the pressure right now. Yeah, so Gary, I won't choke. Gary <laughs> did well. You did the podcast with uh, who were you with? With Steve Brown or uh, with, uh, uh, Heather 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 Laird Fick? Heather Laird Fick. Yeah, so you have a lot of experience doing this. I'm not worried. Anyway, I'm going to start off with our poem, and this is uh, about gabapentin. Uh, it's uh, gabapentin for chronic pelvic pain in women, the GAP-2 trial, a multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. It was published in The Lancet uh, a couple of months ago in 2020. And they asked the question, is gabapentin effective in relieving pain in women with chronic pelvic pain? So this was a study in about 40 UK medical centers with about 300 women, 18 to 50 years, who had chronic idiopathic pelvic pain for at least three months. They excluded women who only had dysmenorrhea. And before they randomized women, they recorded their worst and average pain each week for four weeks to establish a baseline and establish adherence. To get into the study, at least two of the worst scores had to be four out of 10 or higher. So this kind of active run-in period tends to stack the deck in favor of interventions. But in this case, having one actually strengthens the conclusions, I think, as you'll see. The dosing regimen for gabapentin started at 300 milligrams daily. They could increase it by 300 every three days until the woman experienced adequate pain relief or she couldn't stand the side effects any longer. Uh, the maximum dose was 900 TID. After four months, they had data for 80% of the women. The average pain scores and the worst pain scores did decrease for women in both groups, but absolutely no difference between groups. The women who took gabapentin were a lot more likely to report dizziness or drowsiness with a number needed to harm of four for each of those adverse effects. The study was large enough to detect a one-point difference on a 10-point scale, so it was adequately powered. So bottom line, in this study of highly adherent women with chronic pelvic pain, gabapentin was no more effective than placebo in providing pain relief, and it caused a lot more side effects. John, any thoughts? Oh, this is disappointing. Um, it adds to the long list of conditions for which gabapentin 
was thought to perhaps be effective and has been shown in randomized trials to not be effective, including vulvodynia, chronic low back pain with or without radiculopathy, acute and chronic sciatica, postoperative knee pain. But I was holding out, hoping that the studies of gabapentin and post-herpetic neuralgia would have had positive results. So I went to PubMed and looked it up. And believe it or not, the last randomized trial for gabapentin and post-herpetic neuralgia was published in 2009, 11 years ago. And guess what it showed? It showed just a tiny decrease in pain, less than one on a 10-point scale compared to placebo. It's also been tested more recently for prevention of post-herpetic neuralgia in a randomized trial, and it was totally ineffective. So the coffin looks like it's getting sealed on use of gabapentin for just about any kind of pain. It's still espoused to be effective for diabetic uh, neuropathy, but I'm beginning to wonder about that as well. So, you know, uh, John, like you, I did a little homework and I actually went to um, Cochrane Review. And they, um, first of all, said from fibromyalgia, totally ineffective, doses 1,200 to 2,400, uh, prevention of episodic migraine headaches, totally ineffective. But their summary statistic when it came to shingles, uh, neuropathic pain from shingles and diabetic uh, neuropathy was is that there was moderate quality evidence moderate quality evidence. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you don't see that commonly in Cochrane. It's usually low quality evidence. So that got my attention. That doses of 1200 milligrams a day or more has an important effect on pain in quote, some people with moderate or severe neuropathic pain. So I don't know that the, I don't know that they, uh, they you need to totally shut the coffin quite yet on this. Um, okay. We'll leave it cracked. Yeah. Just leave it cracked a little bit because I mean, in some ways, what else do we have to offer these patients? Right. And if there is some evidence, uh, and I'm not talking about the chronic pain, uh, pelvic pain uh, patients right now, that seems pretty, you know, pretty great study, by the way. Um, but, you know, looking just at least looking at the Cochrane, I at least want to give a little glimmer of hope that there may be something out there, some signal out there that in certain very, you know, subsect of patients, this still may be effective. Yeah, you know, I guess my, my cons- I think I see gabapentin being used. And I agree with what you said, Gary. I think there probably is some you know, diabetic neuropathy and for uh, post-herpetic neuralgia, there, there may be some benefit. Um, but, you know, I see it being used all the time for patients with low back pain, for any kind of painful condition. And, you know, it does raise the question, is it, if we give someone 300 milligrams twice a day, is it a useful placebo? Um, is it, is it, you know, not going to be, we, we know in our heart of hearts, it's not effective, but we did see a response in the placebo group in the study and in lots of these studies and, you know, if a placebo works, it's in these sort of chronic, subjective, uh, painful conditions. Um, so, you know, I throw that out there as, you know, is that unethical to do that, knowing that it probably were giving them a, a, an act, slightly active placebo? Well, they'll know they're on the active drug because they're going to get dizzy and tired. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep <laughs> right. it slow. We'll keep right. it to 300 BID, 300 BID. That's all they need. Anyway, so yeah, I think uh, it is it is uh, good to know the evidence, though, and I think uh, thanks for covering that. Um, I think it's I think John, are you going to do the uh, quiz today? Yes, I am. Henry Berry usually does the quiz and wasn't available for the recording session today. Now, this is definitely a John Hickner style quiz. By that, I mean it's very short. I'm a fan of Ernest Hemingway, and he used very few words, and so do I in the quiz. Here it is. 
A recent randomized trial from Denmark found that face masks did not protect the wearer from COVID-19 infection. Which of the following two statements is false? Number one, the study findings do not exclude a protective effect of up to 60, I'm sorry, 46%. Number two, the study findings imply that masks do not protect others either. Stay tuned. All right. Thank you. Well, we will stay tuned. And it's time for uh, Gary to talk a little bit about aspirin. Kind of a John, is sketchy... that called a teaser? Did you just do a teaser? Yes. <laughs> so they have to wait to the end of the podcast to get the answer. I love it. All right. So aspirin, one of my favorite topics. Um, uh, what the heck's up with aspirin? That's a, you know, I gave a talk on this a couple of years ago. So um, there's a abstract that we're going to go through here by Moriarty and this gentleman called Abel, but it's pronounced E-B-E-L-L. So is it, why is it not Ebel? Anyways, I'm just kind of curious about that. Any relation, Mark? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's my, it's my <laughs> other, other brother. <laughs> your, uh, yes, your soulmate. Uh, the title of the article is a comparison of contemporary versus older studies of aspirin for primary prevention in family practice in 2020. And the the basic question is, uh, should we still be using aspirin for primary prevention? So what the heck's up with aspirin? So Mark and his colleague did a a nice meta-analysis where they compared the summary statistics from four of the largest studies on aspirin for primary prevention since 2005 and compared the results of that meta-analysis to uh, studies that were done before 2000. So more contemporary, less contemporary analysis. Um, And basically what they found here is that when they compared the um, summary statistics that you commonly get with a meta-analysis, that there was no evident reduction in four of the primary reasons why we would consider using aspirin. So think about cancer death, uh, cancer incidence, uh, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and uh, cardiovascular mortality. So there was a null uh, finding for all four of those outcomes. Uh, now, Mark and his colleague then went in to do um, kind of a comparative numbers needed to treat, numbers needed to harm. And if I'm doing my math correctly here, for every 12,000 per uh, 1,200 patients or persons, I should say, that are treated with aspirin, again, low-dose aspirin, we're talking that 70 to you know 80 milligrams, maybe up to 100 for five years, you'd get basically seven fewer uh, ischemic events, heart attacks and strokes, but you'd have eight more hemorrhages, either intracranial or mem- uh, major bleeding events. And so the metric on that, when you do the weight, basically, um, is, is tilting toward risk. So that's basically what they found here. Now, um, what I thought I would do is embellish this a little bit more and just talk very briefly. So the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guideline for aspirin is still in effect, but it's being updated. So that's kind of an important concept. They gave a B recommendation for the use of aspirin. Now, we'll see if that's going to change in their subsequent, um, in their subsequent report. Uh, only in patients between 50 and 59, adults basically, they had to have a 10-year, uh, 10% cardiovascular risk. And they had to be willing to take it for 10 years. I underlined that in my notes because I want to come back to that. They had to have a a life expectancy greater than 10 years. And they had to be at low risk of GI bleeding. And when they did their metric back then, again, using some of the older studies, they basically found that there was a benefit and therefore uh, gave them a stamped it with a B recommendation. Now, subsequent to 2016, uh, several trials came out. The two biggies were the Esprit trial and the ARRIVE trial. They basically looked at the same question. If we give patients 
uh, low-dose aspirin and follow them through, I'll talk about follow-up in a minute, does anything good happen to them? So the ESPRIT trial was a five-year follow-up. The ARRIVE trial was also a five-year follow-up. And the age difference between the two was 74 and 64. So the ESPRIT was 74. Uh, average age of ARRIVE was 64. And they looked at all kinds of outcomes. And they could not find any um, signal even that there was a benefit to low-dose aspirin. And of course, as you might intuit, there were uh, higher bleeding events in patients who were on the low-dose aspirin. So those were null studies also. Again, I'm sure Mark used those studies as part of his, uh, part of his meta-analysis. So that, this is where we're at right now. Now, a, a couple of nuanced points, if you dig into some of these studies that, that I do think at least deserve some discussion. Number one, and this is probably the most important point, and the authors were very clear on this, they didn't test the hypothesis that stopping aspirin in patients who fell into these categories was a good idea. You know, many of our patients have been on aspirin for decades. And, you know, the question now becomes because these studies suggested that starting aspirin at these ages did not provide anything good. It doesn't necessarily translate that stopping those who've reached those thresholds is also a good thing. Uh, uh, there is some data, and Mark, I'm sure we'll talk about this, that dose might matter. Maybe patients in these or people in these studies were underdosed. There is some evidence to suggest that. Obviously, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, again, maybe looking at the cancer outcomes that patients would be need to be willing to take aspirin for 10 years. That was part of their entry criteria into their recommendation. These studies were basically five years, half of that. Um, and so the other, I want to throw just a little bit of wrench in the works here. Uh, and I was about ready to like uh, proverbially uh, put the nail in the coffin on aspirin in terms of starting it. it. Turns out the New England Journal just last week came out with an article called The Polypill with or without aspirin in patients without cardiovascular disease. So the polypill basically had some um, statin in it. It had an ACE inhibitor. It had hydrochlorothiazide. And I think one, I'm trying to remember one other, there's one other, I think maybe it uh, might've been, an, um, I can't remember if a calcium channel blocker was in there or not, but it's basically one pill that had constituents of all of these in here. They did a randomized trial of patients, um, 5,000 patients, primary prevention, followed them through for about five years or so uh, with or without aspirin. So the only variable that they adjusted was aspirin. And they found that there was a, a benefit in terms of MACES, uh, the NNT, and that was 58 over the course of five years or so. So I'm not sure the aspirin story is entirely out yet. I just want to finish and kind of see what Mark and John think. Uh, the ACCAHA still give a 2B recommendation. So their 2B recommendation is, you know, aspirin, quote, may be considered. It's of unknown usefulness. So they're not quite ready also to throw aspirin out for primary prevention. But they basically say if patients are really high cardiovascular risk and really low risk of at least GI bleeding, you might want to consider it in those patients. So that's what I have to say about this. Great. Gary, that was a great summary. And I've, I've heard you give this talk on aspirin as part of our CME courses and, and you, you know, this stuff, um, you know, I'll add a couple things. One, uh, I think it's a good point. These studies are only five years. They're not 10. Um, and so hopefully we'll have more data. Most of these were published around 2018. So hopefully in a few years, we'll have more data. Uh, one of the studies, even though it was only five years long, found an increase in cancer mortality, um, even after five years. So that's concerning to me. Um, I agree about the existing users and that's those folks who've been taking it for 30 years. Maybe they've proven that they are aspirin tolerant are unlikely to, to have a complication. And so maybe that is a somewhat different calculation. And then, you know, the issue of dose is an interesting one that comes, I think what you're talking about comes from the Rothwell data, which is the older studies as well. So 
bit of an asterisk there because it was, again, looking at the older data where it found that greater benefit in higher doses. And then finally, I love the polypill study. They've been kicking around that idea for a long time. I think it probably makes more, I think it's important that those studies were done in uh, developing world where it's completely different health systems. Their primary cardiovascular prevention practices in terms of statins and hypertension control and management and management of cardiovascular events and all that may not be the same, probably isn't the same as in the US and Europe. And it may more resemble actually what cardiovascular prevention was in the 80s and 90s in uh, the wealthier uh, countries in the world. So, you know, there's still some variables out there, but Anyway, I'm, I'm curious what we've, Gary and I have been monopolizing this. John, you have any uh, comments to help bring this all together? Oh, that's a great discussion. I really don't have anything to add. So I think we could go ahead and move on to the next poem, which is mine. And this is a, a very interesting small randomized trial of comparing plaster cast and walking boot, uh, each with rehab for patients with acute Achilles tendon rupture. So let's take a look at it. The study was published in American Journal of Sports Medicine this year, 2020, volume 48, starting on page 2755, if you want to look at it yourself. The study included patients with acutely ruptured Achilles tendons who initially presented to one hospital in Scotland. They randomized the patients to either treatment with a walking boot or below-the-knee plaster cast. The boot allowed more frequent gradual repositioning of the foot, so there was some advantage there. And then after removal of the cast or boot, all patients underwent the same rehab program. The main outcomes were measured at 6 and 12 months, and it was a functional assessment score, which makes a lot of sense. They also calculated the Achilles tendon total rupture score for each patient, which is a sort of a standard measure in Achilles tendon research. At one year, they only had 100 of the original 140 patients, so we have a problem with loss to follow-up. However, when they looked at the outcomes, more than 90% of the patients in each group had returned to normal daily activities, and there was really no significant difference in the two groups in terms of the outcomes. There is a larger study that was published within the last couple of years that we also have in the POEM database that reached identical conclusions. So despite the limitations of this study, I believe the conclusions are correct. That is that whether you use a plaster cast or a walking boot, the outcomes are very likely to be the same. And certainly the walking boots, I would say, are more convenient than repeated plaster casting because a single cast really doesn't do the trick. But I know what you're all wondering. You're thinking to yourself, well, what about surgery? So I took a look at surgery too, and there have been some good randomized trials and meta-analyses of surgery versus a conservative treatment. And there's a slight favoring of surgery, but it's very small. The risk difference for re-rupture, for example, is only 1.6%. So a number needed to treat of about 40, in other words, uh, to get one less rupture, and that is in the surgical group. However, surgery has higher complication rates, such as infection. So I think the treatment itself, the choice between surgery and conservative therapy, really needs to be a discussion and shared decision-making between the patient and the physician. 
Uh, oh. Mark, any comment? Oh, you and your shared decision making all the time. <laughs> you betcha. Take a stand. Take a stand. <laughs> no, I think no. I think you know. Every time we look at an orthopedic problem, you know, it seems like the more conservative, the less invasive often does as well or nearly as well, and, and ought to be considered an option. It's true for you know shoulders and knees and Achilles. And uh, I do, you know, I think you're right though. I mean, if you have a um, a younger athletic person, uh, you know, then maybe surgery is getting them back to activity and um, maybe having a slightly lower chance of, of re-rupture is worth it. On the other hand, if it's an old person like me who just rides a bike, um, you know, maybe uh, a more conservative approach makes sense. Gary, you're an athlete. Yes, plaster casts. I didn't. Do we still use those? <laughs> it's just, I know. It's I, know. Like, I remember I, learning how to do it. I remember being very proud of my my casts and you know <laughs> making it all smooth. And the patient would come back in two weeks later, and it was still on their arm. And I, I and, 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 and many many people had signed it. You know. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, so it was. It became a piece of art. Anyways, I, I was just uh, I was flabbergasted that people would actually acquiesce to having a plaster cast on their leg for twelve weeks and in three different positions. So that that kind of blew me away. No, I think I think uh, I agree with you, Mark. I mean, I think when we look at some of these uh, orthopedic studies, I think we've looked clearly at knees. That's probably the biggest one that, in which they continue to study and they continue to find that there's really almost no difference with your typical degenerative arthritis or your typical, you know, mild meniscal tears, non-traumatic meniscal tears. No difference, you know, between uh, you know conservative and um, surgical therapy after after uh, twelve. Um, yeah, 12 months or so. So this falls into that same paradigm. So I think you're right. And I think until we actually study these, then we feel more confident in our capacity to actually make that recommendation. Now, I don't think most of our listeners, maybe they do, uh, will be doing this solo unless you're you know, trained in sports med, but at least giving the patient some information to go to the orthopod with and saying, listen, I'm aware of the study of, you know, basically, um, you know, putting a boot on for uh, I think it was 12 weeks or so with follow-up physical therapy, she seemed to have good outcomes. Can we give that a try? So um, it would make me more confident in making that recommendation to patients. Thanks, Gary. And thank you, John. Um, John, are you going to give us the answer to the quiz? Yes, I will. The correct answer is A, the study findings do not exclude a protective effect of up to 60, I'm sorry, 46%. Let me just go through the study briefly. This is a bonus abstract. It's a randomized trial in Denmark, appropriately named Dane Mask 19, and they sought to determine if wearing masks in a community setting, in addition to other public health measures, protected the wearer from COVID. They had 6,000 participants who were all asked to follow social distancing and half were randomly assigned to wear a three-layer disposable surgical mask or to not wear a mask, and it was for one month. 81% of the participants completed the study, and infection with COVID was rare. It was 42 participants, or 1.8% in the mask wearers, and 53, or 2.1% in the control patients. So that's a pretty small difference with an odds ratio of 0.82. Because the infection rate was low, the 95% confidence intervals did not exclude a possible 46% reduction in infections in the mask wearers. So it uh, was not a big enough study really because of the low infection rate. The other limitation, of course, is that social distancing measures were in place at the time of the study. And, and as, as I said, the infection rate was quite low. 
The study purpose was not to determine if mask wearing prevents others from being infected. So uh, that was uh, true, that it does not determine that. So masks are still recommended. I think it's a bit up in the air whether wearing the mask prevents uh, infection in the wear, although the CDC recently uh, made a proclamation that it probably does. Uh, this is a pretty good randomized trial, though, so it doesn't, uh, it doesn't answer the final question, but I think uh, the prudent thing to do is to continue to wear masks, obviously. Yeah, and I think it you, you know depends on what kind of mask. Obviously, if you got an N95, that's probably going to give you much better protection than a you know surgical mask, much better Absolutely. than a cloth mask, right? And um, you know when I'm out and about, that's what I have on. And so the um, also the early estimates from basically lab based data was that it provides about a twenty percent protection, a 20% reduction in your risk of getting infected. So that would be within the range of what you're talking about here, uh, but that it provides a 50% reduction in your likelihood of infecting others. And so it's it's basically, I think it's consistent with what we know, but it's it's good to see kind of some real world uh, studies come out on this. So yeah, thanks, guys. Go ahead, Gary. I was, I was surprised by the uh, the low infection rate. The, the other thing I just want to bring up uh, real quickly was I just became aware of KN95 masks. So I was wearing that recently as well. So there's all kinds of masks out there. So KN95 is apparently the equ rough equivalent of a uh, N95 mask, but it's not certified by our own, um, you know, NIOSHA. So just FYI on that one. Yeah, that's, I think it's sort of the Chinese version of the N95. Yes. We, yeah, we've, uh, in fact, I was able to get a, a box of those very early on in March when uh, N95s were totally unavailable, and I still have uh, some of those lying around. Um, so this is the point where we do a, a recommendation, and I was just thinking about what to recommend. And I'll recommend, since John did a Danish study, um, the series Borgen on Netflix, which uh, I, we've been totally devouring. It's sort of a Danish West Wing. Uh, it's a moderate politician who's the first woman prime minister. Uh, it's about seven or eight years old now. I think there have been three or four seasons. And uh, she's getting pulled from the left, pulled from the right. Uh, it's just fascinating. And as long as you can put up with subtitles, you got to be able to put up with that. Um, so it does require a little more attention on the screen. Uh, but it's a great series. And the the, the lead characters are totally engaging. And, I, and we actually like that. So if you're into Danish political dramas, Borgen is the show for you. So uh, I'm going to finish by saying the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. The IFB designates this internet enduring activity for up to 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. The IFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy, the ACCME and the AMA. It's the policy of Illinois AFP to ensure balance, independence, objectivity, and scientific rigor in all of its educational activities. By way of disclosure, Henry and I are paid by Wiley to write the poems, but we're not paid to do this podcast, maybe someday. Um, and so the Earl for getting that CME credit is iafp.mclms.net. I hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes, and we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care, everyone.